Well, and we are up here, and it's, it's midsummer, and Jerry is out of town. Jerry is uh, at uh, Fuller Seminary in California. He's working on his doctorate of ministry, a two-week program, and then he does some other work during the year, and you can pray for Jerry. And uh, uh, Megan is out of town with their kids today as well, somewhere else. We can pray, be praying for them, but since Jerry's away, we will play. We're going to do something a little different. <laughs> uh, John and I are tag-teaming to preach, and John, you ready win. to go? You got to bring your A game? May the best man win. May the best man win. Okay. <laughs> but uh, we're continuing today in Galatians. We've been, we've been talking about Galatians the last two weeks, and today we're in chapter three. And Jerry preached the last two weeks. He talked a lot about law and grace, that new Christians needed not to focus on being legalistic, but on being gracious. So when we start today, I'll take the part of law and John will take the part of grace. And we dress the part. I've got my suit and tie. I'm looking very law-like. And then John, John looks cool, although our colors match. I saw my tie and right. our pants kind of match. We colors match. But John's looking very casual, grace, gracious. John's got the cool beard. I don't. I've got the cool glasses. Okay, so my, maybe my glasses aren't that cool. But. Nope. So we're law and grace. But before we begin talking about it, we're going to read from God's Word. Uh, today it's in Galatians 3, verses 1 through 18. This is God's word. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by doing, your, doing the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so you see those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the one who is righteous will live by faith. But the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I give an example from daily life. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one adds to it or annuls it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but it says, and to your offspring, that is, to one person who is Christ. My point is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes from the promise. But God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Let us pray together. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts 
be pleasing and honoring to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. And so, as I said, I'm taking the part of the law. And so for a little bit of a background, as we look back in Galatians, most of the early Christians were Jews. And when Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, they are still new at this Christianity thing. Now, there are other people called Judaizers who were telling the new Christians that Gentiles, when they came to, came to faith in Christ, must follow Jewish law. And so while I'm sure there were many who were accepting of grace, there were many who were pushing for all new Christians to follow Jewish law. I think it's similar today for those who, like me and maybe some of you, who grew up in the church. We've been following, quote-unquote, uh, Christian law. We've been doing the right things, living right, speaking right, saying the right things, going to Christian retreats, reading my Bible. You know, I've been a good Christian most of my life. So how would it be that someone, even today, who hasn't lived right, maybe they lived a crazy lifestyle, they've had fun, how can they receive God's grace and have all the privileges I have? How can that be? You know, it really doesn't seem fair to me. For some Jewish Christians back then, how could it be that Gentiles, they weren't God's chosen people, they've just received the grace by asking Jesus into their lives or by receiving him, how can they have all the privileges of the Jewish Christians, those who've been faithfully following the law, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws in their lives? It just doesn't seem fair. So for many of the Jewish Christians then and for some Christians today, a law viewpoint of faith makes sense. Don't lie, don't steal, don't take the Lord's name in vain, don't covet your neighbor's nice things. You know, I can work hard to do those things. I can work hard to follow the law. I grew up in Texas and I was talking to a guy uh, last week, a friend who's from Texas, and he said one Christian law that he heard was this, don't drink, smoke, or chew, and don't go with girls who do. So... Uh, <laughs> That was a law that we followed, you know. <laughs> Not sure you'd want to go with girls anyway if they chew tobacco, but, but that was a rule. That was a law, you know, and so you heard that as, as Christians growing up in Texas. But Paul has a different way. He says right here in Galatians 3.1, the very first verse, you foolish Galatians, did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Well, it's obvious that God gave a great gift of grace. God says that he gave, Paul says that God gave the Holy Spirit to those who believed. It's clear that it's a gift of grace. It's not by doing works of the law that we receive God's Spirit. But we, I would say myself and maybe some of you, maybe some of the Galatians, will still feel comfortable following the law. What I mean by that is, you know, if I'm good enough, if I follow the rules, you know, if I'm, if I'm at ZPC, if I'm at church three out of four Sundays, if I sign up to build the Habitat House, you know, that's on the back of the bulletin, if I volunteer at BBS, if I give money to the church, then maybe I'm good enough. We may not realize it, but if we're doing things in a way to earn God's favor, then really we're still trying to follow the law. It's just not the Jewish law back then. And I want to let you know that I, Scott Shelton, and maybe some of you can be comfortable at times trying to live a life that pleases God and that is more likely following the law. So I think this passage today out of Galatians 3 really speaks to me, and I hope it speaks to you. So John, help me out. 
What do you have to say about law and grace? Because I'm struggling with the law. Well, first off, they must do things different in Texas because I grew up in Kentucky and I never heard such a law. In okay, fact, right. in fact, you might run into quite a few girls who chew. Um, <laughs> uh, if you're a parent in the room, raise your hand. Keep your hand up if as a parent, ridiculous things have come out of your mouth at one time or another. Yes, thank you. Uh, like, like you, Scott, I'm a dad. I'm a parent. And uh, my daughter, Emma, is six. And I've said this before, she's six and a half. If you run into her, make sure it's six and a half or she'll correct you. Um, and Emma, she grows so fast. But when Emma was two, three, four years old, I noticed myself beginning to make the most ridiculous rules. And as a parent, I found myself being the lawmaker or, or the rule bringer. And when she was two, three, or four, I would say things like, Emma, we don't throw our food on the floor. And I would find myself saying, Emma, we don't do that, as if I came to dinner and often threw my food on the floor. <laughs> I don't know why, but I would, I would bring the laws that way, hoping that maybe they would be more palatable to her. And I would say things like this. They got more ridiculous. I would say, Emma, we don't play in the toilet. These are things I've had to say that have, have, that have come out of my mouth. Emma, we don't eat the dog's food. Emma, we don't put raisins in our pants. <laughs> These are things that I have said as a parent. And as I was thinking about the ridiculous things that we've had to do as parents and the ridiculous things we've had to say, I kind of thought a little bit about the book of Leviticus. If you've never read the book of Leviticus, you've got to get to it tonight. It's a page turner. You're going to love it. Okay? Leviticus, there are some ridiculous things in here. In chapter 19 of Leviticus, it says, don't curse at the deaf and don't trip the blind. And I read that and I think to myself, this was obviously a problem that someone at some point had to write down, don't do this. There's, there's several paragraphs about not making your daughter a prostitute. There's several paragraphs about not putting your neighbor's life in jeopardy. I'm thinking, good grief, these were problems that we had to put down a law for. But that's the point. God's people continually fall short of the law. We're unable to keep it, we're unable to uphold it, and so we find ourselves in the midst of the second side of the coin, which is grace. And grace is not near as easily talked about or defined as the law. It doesn't fit in this nice, neat system that the law does. It's not always a nice, neat picture. It's messy, and it's hard to bring into focus sometimes. And sometimes the more you dig into something and the more you try to define it and the more you try to wrap words around it, you actually find that you don't know much about it at all. And for me, personally, that's what I find with grace. E.B. White, the author of Charlotte's Web, said this about grace. Grace can't be dissected like a frog. It dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. Now, the very proper definition of grace is the unmerited favor of God. The unmerited favor of God. But the older I get and the more I think about grace and how grace has been a part of my life, I'm left with a simple definition that works for me. Grace is God at work. In other words, if I did any of it, it wasn't grace. If I did any of it, then I didn't really need grace at all. But if I couldn't do it, 
That's when grace comes into play. Grace is God doing what we can't. We're offered grace freely, not by our own doing, but by God's. So, <clears throat> grace is freely given, as you said. God does the work. And obviously, I agree with you. I'm not going to argue that, right? I mean, it says in verses 6 through 10 in Galatians 3 that God will justify the Gentiles by their faith through grace. But good Jews were children of Abraham, and some would say they have good standing with God because of their pedigree. They were sort of like royal family. Because of their, who their family is, the family of Abraham, they are blessed. And yet God tells Paul, and Paul tells us, that the Gentiles were blessed by Abraham because of faith, that those who believe are blessed like Abraham who believed. Some would say that grace is easier to receive because it's free and it's refreshing, and it is. You know, our songs are about grace this morning. We've sung about it, and it's a great concept. It's a wonderful thing to receive and to have. But I have to say for some of us, and apparently for some of the Jewish Christians back then, the law is still easier to understand, and sometimes it feels easier to live by. For example, John, I know you and I both grew up playing sports. We talk about baseball often since we're in June and we're in baseball season. And all my four kids at my house are growing up playing sports. Now, if your opponent in a game is trash-talking you, meaning they're, they're putting you down, saying you aren't very good during the game, maybe something not as nice as that, you could just say, if your team is winning, you could just say, scoreboard, point at the scoreboard. We're the home team. We're up by 12, 47-35 scoreboard. So, so shut your mouth. Quit talking, right? Okay. That's because in sports, we have winners and losing. And I'm the home team and I'm winning. And I think that's one of the reasons sports are so popular. I think with me and my family, it's easy to define. And I think that's part of the reason it's so popular with Americans. We need winners and losers. And Americans are winners, right? We always want to win. We have to win. We have to win so much, in fact, when you think about the National Football League where the, the Colts play, for a long time, they were okay with ties at the end of a game, at the end of fourth quarter, but eventually they had to have overtime. And it wasn't just overtime, it was sudden death overtime. Someone has to lose, you know. And so we're very comfortable with winning and losing. We need a winner. It's all about the score. Now, I'm not against sports. I think you learn a lot of things about sportsmanship and teamwork and, and respect and working together, all those great things. But I know for me, if I translate some of that winning and losing into my faith, I can be in trouble. I know, John, for me as a Christian, if I'm not careful, I can carry a sort of law mindset into my life, into my faith, and I can keep score. What's that look like? Well, I can make sure that I'm reading my Bible. You know, I got to read my Bible every day. You know, who cares if I apply it to my life as long as I read it and I can check it off my list. In my, in my home, in my family, I can make sure that I'm doing my part around the house. Take my trash out on Monday morning. Don't miss the trash. And I'll make sure I'm keeping my garage clean. Usually my garage is messy, but I cleaned it yesterday, so I can check that off my list, okay? I can even find ways, I would say on my worst days, to keep score with my family. You know, am I, am I a better husband than my wife is a good wife? Am I keeping score with the things? Am I doing enough good things to be a good father? And am I doing those things in order to please myself or to please God? Am I trying to score points 
to get God's approval. If I am, then I'm in the wrong. I'm following the law. Now, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good pastor. I want to read my Bible. I want to learn from it. But I need to do those things. I need to continually remind myself and be reminded by God to do those things in grace, not because I'm trying to score points for God or anyone else. And I know that I shouldn't be a scorekeeper, although there's days in my life I find that I am. So, John, I want to take a shot in a few minutes to talk about how God calls me to live in grace and stop keeping score. But I know you have some more words to share about grace. So help us out. Uh, well, I think that's the difficulty with grace. That's the sticking point for us is that grace has nothing to do with our own abilities. It has nothing to do with how good we are or how many things we do right or what the score is. Uh, grace is undeserved. It's something given to us that shouldn't have been, and that's hard for us. We don't, we don't receive things well that we don't deserve. Now, if you have your bulletin, I want you to write down two things. Um, if you have a pen and your bulletin, I want you to write down two, uh, two phrases. The first phrase is, so that. So that. Right under, underneath that, you can write the word because. So that and because. I think these two phrases help, can help us understand the difference between grace and the law. The law tells us that we should be doing something, right? It's a rule. It says we should be doing something or not doing something, as the case may be. But grace changes all of that. It changes our motive for doing. With the law, the motive for doing is so that. So that I'm a better dad, better husband, as you mentioned, Scott. Right. So that I can be loved, so that I can be saved, so that I can be forgiven. I'm going to do these things so that I can attain the goal. But grace flips that and says that you do because, because I've been loved, because I've been saved, because I've been forgiven. So that, or the law, leaves us chasing after a goal that we never quite reach. But because, or grace, gives us a new understanding. Because I'm loved well, I will love others well. Because I've been saved from the curse, as Paul mentions in Galatians, I will point others toward Christ. Because I've been forgiven, I will forgive and I'll seek forgiveness from those around me. So that and because. Now, I want to, just real quick, a side note. I know that we have all experienced moments or relationships in our lives that are full of what I would call ungrace or lack of grace. We've all been there and experienced that. I know that we've had times in our lives where we've lived in ungrace, where we've lived in shame or judgment measuring up but not good enough. People have put things on us. We've experienced hurt because of others' lack of grace or their ungrace. We carry guilt because sometimes others won't forgive us when, when we can't possibly forgive ourselves. And some of you have carried anger and bitterness and hatred and frustration, thinking that you're hurting the person who hurt you when all along you're just hurting yourself. Now, God's approach to grace is supposed to bring about freedom, 
Grace is supposed to free us, but grace has been so distorted for us at times in our lives that it's simply crushed who we are and it's crushed our spirits rather than its intended purpose of liberating our souls. And it's unfortunate, but grace is often most misunderstood right here in the church. Paul is obviously addressing this in Galatians. The Galatians have a misunderstanding of what grace is. And so sometimes the most misunderstood um, part of grace is right here in the church, even here at ZPC. In the hearts of people who are dying to be forgiven, but don't know how to offer forgiveness themselves. People who are dying to receive grace, but don't know how to offer it to other people. So I won't pretend that we haven't experienced moments where grace has been lacking. We have, we've all experienced that, and I get that. But my hope and my prayer for ZPC on a regular basis is that we would be a place of grace, a place where grace is both offered and received, a place where we don't do so that, but a place where we do because. Thanks, John. Appreciate that. Um, so, but I think in case we, if we get away from living by grace, John, as you described, then we live by the law. And I think this is hard to hear, but if we live by the law, we die by the law. We are cursed, Paul says. John alluded to that. What does that mean? If we want to win God's approval by following the law, we can't. We will fail. No one, not even the best person who volunteers for everything that the church has to offer, can fulfill the law. In Galatians 3.10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy when he says that everyone who does not do everything in the book of the law is cursed. We're cursed if we don't do everything in the book of the law. So I can keep score in my head all I want, but I will lose. I may win some battles along the way. I might even be a really, really good person, but I am missing the life of grace that God wants for me. I can never be good enough or score enough points to earn God's approval. I will be keeping score. And keeping score can be a curse. It can lead me to play the comparison game. When I ask questions like, do I, do I work as hard as that other guy? Actually, I don't, so I, I lose that battle. Do I give enough time or money or my talents to earn God's approval? I can't do it, so I will fail. And when I fail, I feel like a failure in my own mind if I'm keeping score. I will try to justify myself by putting others down. I could do that. At least I'm not like that guy. I'm better than that guy over there, that sinner over there. Well, that sounds a lot, how, a, a lot, a lot like how Jesus described the Pharisees in the Gospels, and I don't want to do that. Tim Keller is an author and a pastor from New York City, and he says this better than I can when he talks about uh, Galatians chapter 3, especially when he talks about being cursed and grace and law. He says this, everyone who is seeking to save themselves by their own performance will experience a curse. At the very least, attempting to be saved by works will lead to anxiety and insecurity because you can never be sure that you're living up to your standards sufficiently. This makes you oversensitive to criticism, envious, and intimidated by others who will outshine you. Again, those who will outshine you. It makes you nervous and timid because you are unsure of where you stand or else boastful and swaggering because you are trying to convince yourself of where you stand. Either way, 
you live with a sense of curse and condemnation. So I'll admit, I've played the comparison game at times and it doesn't work. And I don't want to live that way. Instead, I want to live in the way of grace that we are taught in the scriptures. I don't want to compare, but I, instead I want to look at people the way that Jesus did. I, want, I don't want to compare myself to others. I want to see people the way that Jesus sees people. And when we, when we look at the Gospels and we see how he treated others, he loved them. He had compassion on them. He saw them where they were, and then he called them to himself in grace to a life that was better than the life they were living. And I want to live that way with grace glasses. If I see the way that he says, sees things, I can hopefully live that way too. Now, I grew up in the Bible Belt about 30 years ago, Dallas, Texas, and I had a great home church. But I also remember learning from that church as I grew up that if you were a good Christian, you had a quiet time. Now, a quiet time in Dallas meant that you had a, you studied your Bible every day, you prayed every day, you, you kind of prayed in a certain way. And then if you were really good, if you wanted to score big points, you wrote it all down in a journal. And I was good at that game. I was good at keeping score in that way. But it wasn't all bad because here's what I learned. Through my relationships in that church, through my family who took me to church, uh, through pastors there who taught me how to pray, who taught me how to read scripture, as I prayed, as I read God's word, as I had those relationships, I saw grace. And I read things like in, in Galatians, and I realized that God loved me. And because, not so that, because God loved me, I wanted to love him back. And because I loved God, I wanted to love others. Now, as a dad, I can't be a good enough dad. I will fall short um, in the things that I need to do. But here's one thing I do, uh, not every day, but I do this um, many days or many nights with my kids. I'll pray this prayer. I'll say, may you know God's love and may you share it with others. And so for you, my ZPC family and friends, may you know God's grace and may you share it with others. Believe it, receive it, and share it. Not because it's the law, but because you have received God's grace. If you have a phone with you, can you hold it up? It's okay. You're allowed. I'm letting you. Hold it up. Mine's over there. Way to go, Scott. Yeah, in your hand, you, ho you have the ability to take pictures that are so crystal clear, to take moments and to take those moments with you. Now, when I was a kid, growing up, we had a camera in the house that took pictures that did not look that great when they were taken. It was a Polaroid. Anybody have a Polaroid camera? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're under the age of 18, you might not know what a Polaroid camera is. Polaroid camera takes a picture right then and there, prints it out. It sounds fantastic, but in reality, it was awful. Because you would take a picture... Then all of a sudden, it sounded like this machine, this camera, was producing a car or something. This huge, massive clanking sound, and all of a sudden, out would spit this piece of paper. Now, your picture wasn't on the piece of paper yet. Some people would shake it. You're not supposed to do that, apparently. But you would have to wait for this picture to develop. And even after the picture developed, it wasn't a great picture. But that was a Polaroid, and you had it right then and there. And I often think about grace that way. I mentioned earlier that grace is not a nice, neat picture. 
that it's often messy and it's hard to bring into focus. And I think sometimes the only way we can understand grace is to experience it, to touch it and to feel it and to live with it. John 3.16 might be the most simple, clear picture of grace that we have. Whether you grew up in church or not, you're probably familiar with the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's grace that's free. Grace that's not earned by an accomplishment. Grace that's completely given. And I think grace that's free and completely given might only be understood by having experienced it ourselves or at least by sharing stories with each other in our family of moments of grace. And so it's with that I want to leave you guys with this story that hopefully brings us to a closer understanding of this whole grace thing. And as I read, I want you to close your eyes. Try not to doze off if you haven't already. <laughs> and I want, I want you to just think on these words. Longing to leave her poor Brazilian neighborhood, Christina wanted to see the world. Discontent with a home having only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove, she dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning, she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria hurriedly packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with the reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to them all, and at each place, she left her picture, taped to a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet... The little village was, in too many ways, too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you've done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. And so can we. Scott and I can teach on grace. We can try to explain it and we can try to define it. But if you want to know about grace, 
You're going to have to experience it. You're going to have to live with it and touch it. Like Christina, you're going to have to go home. It doesn't matter how many runs you put on the scoreboard or how many small groups or Bible studies you're in. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you've become. Grace is yours. Amen. Amen. We get to experience a celebration of grace through this sacrament of baptism.